What, what, what could you possibly ask me that's not your business? <laughs> I don't know. Sometimes stuff just comes up. Okay. And, you know, I have my list of questions and everything, but sometimes I just, you know, go I off the grid a little bit. What? Huh? <laughs> <laughs> that's how it goes. Welcome to Planet Noun, where it's all about the people, the places, things, and ideas that teach us, prompt us to make a difference, and do more with what life presents. Now, this episode is another installment in our COVID catch-up series. I've been chatting with past guests on Planet Noun to find out how they've been faring during this rough year known as 2020. Now, this time, it's just a little bit different. This time, a first-time guest to the show. Well, why is this part of the COVID-19 catch-up series? Well, this dude I haven't seen in so long. So we overlapped at college for a little bit. We sang the same choir and then poof. After we graduated, no sightings of this brother in person for many years until Facebook came along. Well, technically, I still haven't seen him in person, but I've seen him on Facebook and it's almost like seeing somebody in real life. Except it ain't. Anyway, I still haven't seen him. <laughs> I still haven't seen him in person since the '90s. His name, Brian Watts. He's an author and host of Knowledge Is the Key on Envision Radio. But you know, for this case, since I'm catching up with a brother that I ain't seen in a long time, I'ma use his nickname. So let's get to it with B Watts right here on Planet Noun. I have not seen you in so long since and you let me know the years i guess i'm guessing i haven't seen you since you graduated about december 95 yeah when i left from school i I came back in march in 1996 okay yeah okay so i haven't seen you since then so what have you been up to since the days when wearing overalls with like one overall hanging down on the floor and tims well it's still popular to wear tims that would never never got to do that i've never owned a pair of overalls i still want one nobody wants me to have them Mm-hmm. But I still want to do it one day and some Tim's too. But since those days, uh wow, I've I've had a couple of stints at grad school. A couple of them were successful. <laughs> um I became a mathematics teacher. I started out in New York teaching math at Northeastern Academy. I was the math department and um I didn't like it the first year. In fact, I didn't even accept accept the job when it was offered because I didn't want to do that, and I never really knew what I wanted. I never study at Oakwood. I, I studied math because I was good at it, and that's the only thing I knew to do. So, um, and I just didn't know what I was going to do with anything in my life. I had no idea. Um, the first year I taught was horrible. I mean, I did well teaching, but I couldn't stand the kids. Um, I didn't understand the dynamic classroom management and all of that stuff. So I left for a year. And I got called back. Actually, I told this story today. A, a young man asked me to tutor him one night. I told him, I can only tutor you for an hour. He said, fine. I ended up tutoring him for three hours because I got excited about it. And I was like, oh, shoot, I'm, I'm a teacher. And um, the next day, they called me and asked me to come back to Northeastern. And um, luckily, they had raised their salary, so that made it a little better. And um. I was at a dead end job and it was the middle of the summer. And he said, no, I want you to come back and do summer school and then start the year. And so I did it right away. And um, from then on, I mean, I've been in and out of education, but I've been a um, teacher. I've been an administrator. I've been a consultant. And now 
lastly, I was an international teacher in Kuwait. So, um, yeah, a long way for a guy who didn't want to be, yes, for a guy who didn't want to be a teacher. Yes, I did two years in Kuwait teaching at one of the, um, the in fact, the oldest American school in Kuwait called um, American School of Kuwait, actually. So yeah, that was a that was a great experience to um, to get out of the country and to be so close to other places that you could just travel to places that you always wanted to go to for less money than you ever thought you would spend to wow. go there. So that was that was wonderful. So what made you want to go to to Kuwait? Well, I I love to travel, um, and I thought I was doing my thing going to the West Indies and you know, Bermuda, Canada, and all these little places. I thought I was traveling. <laughs> and um, I had a chance. I was sitting in my apartment one day after I had lost my job a couple years ago. And I said, you always wanted to be an international educator. Why won't you go now? And I waited and I waited and there was no answer. I said, well, I called one of my friends who's actually an international teacher. And I said, it's June. Am I too late for this year? And she said, you're a math teacher. They're always looking for math teachers. So I got online. I paid for a subscription to a recruiter. And I was interviewing right away. And I interviewed people from China and Kuwait. And I thought that it would be a lot easier for me to adhere to the Muslim religion quickly than it would be to maybe a Buddhist or a Hindu religion, which I know nothing about. <laughs> so Kuwait was a lot more, you know, um, just, it seems like it would be an easier transition. Mm, uh, okay, that's that culture Kuwait, shock. Right, I know Kuwait doesn't have liquor. It's a dry country. I don't drink. Uh, they don't have pork. Uh, I don't eat pork. So I was like, okay, I can... I can hang, you know, I can do this. It won't be a problem for me. And so I went and um, I have to say, uh, it was it was amazing. Uh, like I said, the travel opportunities to go other places, the deep dive into the culture there, uh, seeing people uh, with amazing amounts of money. The, the rich people there were richer than any person I had ever encountered and the kids as well that I was teaching were very well off most of them maybe 99 percent of them and it was just it was a whole different thing because I'd been used to teaching urban kids and kids who didn't have and um it was a whole switch of my whole ideology of of teaching because you had to find ways to motivate other than the ways that you might motivate kids who don't have because these kids do have these kids have more money in their pocket than you might make this year so you know <laughs> what are you going to say when they're not doing their work you know i mean you have to find you can't say what about your future my future is sealed in money <laughs> they're looking at you like what about yours you know so you know you're you're not really you're not really doing anything to them as far as that's concerned but there are a lot of them who really want to work um in a place where um women are obviously a lower class than men you find some young ladies who are working hard to show that they're as good you know who are pushing hard in school and some of them who are just doing whatever they want to do just like anywhere else uh you find guys who 
have taken on the role of being a man, maybe prematurely. And so they have, you know, their, their, their attitudes and things are different. And then you have to realize that you're the outsider. <laughs> and so that's hilarious. Oh my goodness. To go from being a person in your own country to somewhere else where you're the outsider is just, amazing and i don't think i felt that as much as i did until corona came out and all of a sudden everybody started to band together with their own so i'm in somebody else's country mm-hmm. the first thing they were ready to do was get rid of all of us who weren't them not get rid of us really but just like you know it made it seem like we felt like we were the ones bringing the disease over you know what i'm saying mm-hmm. but we were the outsiders and um, I can't I can't lie to you. The country did very well with the um, what do you call it? all of the staying in everything, just everything they did perfectly. There was no question. There were no people saying, "Oh, you're taking away my rights." There was nobody losing their minds. Uh, in fact, the city I was in got uh, we we got a influx of people with the disease right away at first there was a small number and then all of a sudden there was a big number because of people that lived right near me mm-hmm. and they shut my city down put a gate around us so we couldn't go out and it was <laughs> it was insane school was closed we couldn't really leave to go anywhere we couldn't get to the stores that were in the next town i mean it was crazy but we really stayed in we really did what we had to do and when we finally got to fly out there were some people on our plane with with full hazmat suits on that's that's how much people were into protecting themselves and so it was weird to fly to houston and see people without masks on on april 29th and i'm like are you what are you doing like i just got off the plane with some guys that look like they work for cdc and y'all are out here just hanging out and so wilding out (laughs) with no mask then i went to atlanta and it was even worse and it was it was insane so it felt like even though people look at these countries as being behind, it felt like they were way ahead and very serious and very just intentional on what they wanted to do to rid their, their area of this disease. And um, so I, I, um, I wanted to come home for certain reasons, but for other reasons, it was like, we should have stayed over there because you felt safer, you know, as far as I was concerned. So how did you mentally cope when with I'm taking it your all of your family is in the states, right? And like you said, you felt like an outsider. You were an outsider, right? And someone else's on someone else's home turf. How did you mentally cope with everyone so far away? Well, I'm, I'm, um, I'm crazy. So um, I no, I, <laughs> I'm I'm a middle <laughs> child. I'm a middle child, right? And um, I've always been the one who's ready to get up and go. Um, if we asked my siblings and I together, you asked the three of us, you know, where you've been, I'm going to have the long rap sheet and not because they can't go those places, but because I'm re- If somebody drove up today and said, Hey man, we're about to go to Aruba. They got some jobs over there. I'm like, for real, you know, and you read to go <laughs> sign up, you know, and it's something that I like to do or something I want to do. I'm going to go try it. And I, that was just me. So um, I think that because I had been to a lot of states in the United States, and like I said, I traveled a lot of places on, on our side of the world, 
I felt like that was going to be nothing for me. But truthfully, it was a lot different this time. Um, because anywhere else I had gone, I could probably find somebody that knew me or I knew or knew my family or knew some of my friends. In Kuwait, there was nobody. And it was weird because um, at I left, I was 48 when I left. So people in my family that started to, um, it seemed like I had a lot of, in that time, the two years I was there, a lot of people uh, passed away. And everyone would like tear at me. And I was like, whoa, I can't be home. And then I was like, well, what were you going to do if you're at home? And there's nothing I could have done, but I felt just so far away. I'm on the, the time difference was eight hours. You know what I'm saying? That, that's what really makes you feel like you're obviously far away. We're eight hours ahead over there in Kuwait. So even trying to have any type of um, friendship or relationship with somebody over here was crazy because with the time difference, the overlap of when each other is busy is insane. The weekend there was Friday and Saturday. We worked from Sunday through Thursday. So imagine if my weekend starts before yours, I'm eight hours ahead of you. That cuts off part of the weekend as well. So now by the time I can get in touch with you, it's almost time for me to go back to work while you're just enjoying the weekend. So it was, it was rough to stay in touch with people, friends, family, whoever. It was, it was crazy. And now, I, I won't say that I was depressed ever, but there were times when I was, how can I say, severely melancholy, okay? Um, it just, it can, it can wear on you. And it, for the first, the first year I was there, I think um, on Friday when we, when we would be off, for, for the first maybe month or two, I would just, on Friday, I would just lay on my couch and just, you know, watch, maybe watch television, watch some movies or something. But I would just veg out. And people were like, you got to get out. You can't sit here and do nothing because you're going to drive yourself crazy. And I think, I was when they when they finally got me out. I was I was probably as close as I could be without going over. But um, you have to get into the culture. You have to get into the activities. You have to get into things. And when you start to do that, and you start to move, then everything starts to come together, and you start to enjoy yourself and realize the the value of the experience. But I was always one of those who could be away from my family. But previous to that, there was always a way to get back home if you needed to. There was, I mean, I could have taken a bereavement flight or something, but to take me 20 hours to get home, that's, <laughs> that's a lot, mm -hmm. you know, when you know that it's gonna take that long and that's only after you've gotten on the flight, you have to get a flight and you have to go through all that stuff. So it was a lot, it was definitely a lot. So let's go back to your comment about uh, being an outsider Okay. in Kuwait. Now compare that to being a black man in the United States. No comparison. <laughs> I, <laughs> I am more of an outsider here than I was there. Um, I like, like right now, if you see me, I, I've shaved just two days ago for the first time in a long time. But I had a full beard and an afro. And there, where I lived in Kuwait in Mabula, there were a lot of Indians that lived there. They're the guys that worked the um, oil fields that are there in Kuwait that make all the Kuwaitis all the money. Everybody, not everybody, but a lot of people are my complexion. 
And so when I would go to work every day, I'd have on a shirt and tie and we would get on buses and go to work. So we didn't really see people. But after work, if I put on some regular clothes and went to the store, people would walk up to me and speak their language to me. And I would say, no, no, no. And they were so shocked. I'm like, no. And they, they couldn't believe that I wasn't what they were. I wasn't Indian. And when I was in, in the middle of downtown Kuwait, Kuwaiti people would talk to me and I would say, I'm sorry, I don't know what you're talking Oh my goodness, you're American? Um, I went to Egypt. Uh, a tour guide started to ask me questions. And I said, I don't know why you're asking me questions. He said, wait, you're American? You're not Egyptian? No, I'm not Egyptian. So everywhere I went, except for Thailand, because that was an Asian country, and it was obvious that I was not Asian. But um, everywhere I went, I was those, I was those people. And um, so I never felt, I didn't feel the outsider part, except for when I didn't have my people around, you know? Um, oh, until, like I said, Corona came, and then every, everybody sort of started to hang with their family and get close together. And I can understand that. But um, yeah, here in America, um, <laughs> as a black man, uh, when I came back to New York the year before I left to go to Kuwait, or a year and a half before I went to Kuwait, I got pulled over maybe 20 times between in the 18 months that I moved back and before I went to Kuwait, uh, I was getting pulled over constantly and um, for nothing. I never got a ticket. I never got anything. But, um, you know, and I remember when I first decided to go to Kuwait, uh, not to go to Kuwait, just to teach internationally, I talked to my sister and I said, hey, what do you think about me getting a job internationally? She said, this doesn't seem like a good time to go out of the country. And I was like, why not? She said, it's not safe. And I said, I'm getting pulled over once or twice a month here. And I'm black. And, you know, Philando Castile had happened. All these other guys had had Mike Brown. All of this stuff had happened already. I was like, I'm petrified already so what's going to be worse than this and she was like well you got a point and i'm gonna tell you i was in a lot of countries on that side of the world these last two years and outside walking at two and three in the morning i went to visit thailand and i walked all over the place and i realized i it took me a while to realize wait i'm not scared i'm from the i'm from the south bronx I didn't walk around two or three in the morning in the South Bronx, where I was from. But I'm in countries where people are just relaxing. And I'm, I'm sure there's danger some places, you know, but it wasn't the same. And I didn't feel like because of my color that something was going to be a problem. You know, uh, for some reason, it seems that the um, racism here has become very in face, no matter where you live. We used to say there's a big difference between the North and the South. But now it seems like it's just, you know, just just do it. Everybody's picking it up. And it's not just discrimination against us, even though that seems to be the, the major one. But discrimination on a whole is definitely in style now. And it's it's the way that people are doing things. And so, um, yeah, there, I wouldn't compare that at all. I, I was very afraid when I first went to Kuwait. And I realized that that was because of the indoctrination of being an American. And um, mm -hmm. when I would go outside, <laughs> all the guys I saw looked like every terrorist I ever saw on any movie 
in my life. And I was like, oh, they're going to kill me. And like I said, when they started to walk up to me and speak to me in their language, I was like, wait, these guys are not against me. These, wait. They, they think you're family. Right. They, they, like you. they think you're family. Somebody taught me that that's what the terrorist looks like. And when, when, you know, so I was like, wait, these guys are cool. And I started walking around. I started really getting out. And guys would say, you know, the, the, the mosque, there was a mosque across the street. All day, you'd see guys and then salam, assalamu alaikum, you know, whatever. It was just greetings. There was peace. Um, it, was, it, was, it was a joy to see something different and to see that there was, I'm not saying these countries are perfect, but I'm just saying I didn't feel ever like I was somebody who was going to be uh, cast down because of my race. If they are racist against me, they hit it well. They deserve, they deserve an award for hiding it the way they did. The International Oscar, <laughs> for, whatever that would be called. And so um, one of the things I've been talking to some past few guests about, too bad, well, we have 210,000 people as of this recording, around 210,000 deaths as a result of COVID-19. I, I have no words. Right. I have no words especially because, and this is just me, I'm not a scientist, not a doctor, but it seems like these could have been, those deaths could have been prevented. And it also seems that the deaths of unarmed black people at the hands of law enforcement can be prevented. Why can't COVID kill racism? Why can't racism just die? Well, I don't, I don't know why racism is the way it is in the rest of the world. I have no idea. I haven't really lived in those places that other places that are as racist as the United States. I'm sure there are some. I just don't know. I know why it can't die in America. Uh, And it's because it is what built America. And you can't be the foundation of something and then pull it out. Um, if you pull out the foundation, everything else crumbles. Um, when you build a nation by systematically putting people down and using them for uh, 100% free labor, that's the way you became a world power in record time. That's the way your nation became rich. That's the way your nation stays rich. That is how this nation works. And so it's not something, it's not just something that's a problem. It's, it's a solution for some people. It's a problem for those of us who are being stepped on, but it's the solution for those who are making money off of it. So those people who have their forefathers who are the forefathers of this country know that for this country to stay the way it was and to give them what they need, that that's something they have to keep enforcing. And I think that um, one of the biggest problems for us is that the game keeps changing before we know. And we have to find a way to educate ourselves, our children, and at least three generations deep on what's going on or what we're going to do so that we can stand against the onslaught. Because everybody has a different viewpoint. If I look at people my parents' age, they have a view of how they should act with this. 
we, our age, have a viewpoint of how we should act, and our children have another viewpoint. So, and usually what ends up happening is we end up fighting each other for how we're going to deal with this thing. And um, we're usually not in agreement. And I think that if we came together and had a meeting of the minds, we could probably come to, to a great solution in a way to, to com combat this. But it's, it's something that has been planned. It's nothing that's happening by happenstance. There is a great concentrated effort to keep this going. And we cannot just act like we're gonna jump up and do something like that that's gonna combat something that has been that ingrained. So we need to sit down and, and really study this problem and find real solutions that can be implemented on a daily basis. And I mean, because so many things we start to do, and we don't finish. I mean, we were boycotting the NFL. I don't know how many people are still boycotting the NFL, but not many. I know when the guy from Goya stood up and said what he said, a lot of people said, oh, no more Goya. But Goya is still probably the top selling <laughs> Uh, they're definitely selling their beans. I know that. They're, um, they're, those cans are still on the shelves in the store and they're still being sold. So, I mean, the boycotts we have sometimes are short-lived, you know, because they're things that we want, things that we desire, things that we are used to. And um, until there's some great sacrifice, I don't think that um, we'll get out of that. What are some of the things you think folks need to sacrifice? I love now that I can't tell you because mm -hmm. it's easy for me to say some things that you sacrifice because I can tell you things that I don't even want that I don't even deal with and be like sacrifice that because you know I don't do that so it don't <laughs> matter to me like you know if you boycott the NFL you're probably not gonna hurt me I mean I have a favorite football team but I don't watch football on the regular you know if I if I watch usually it's the Super Bowl because I'm gonna do the cooking for the Super Bowl party. So, you know, that's, I'm not, there, there are things, each one of us has our things that we hold on to. Um, the truth is that um, we just have to stand up and, and go against what's going on. And we have to agree on that. You know, of course there might be the little few people that, that don't get along with us, that don't come along, but the group of us have to stand against this opposition because truthfully we're being led like it's like watching a man lead a big beast like an elephant in the circus or something like that mm -hmm. that beast could easily just stomp on him and kill him or whatever but somehow he has gotten the mind of this beast and can lead this beast to do whatever he wants him to do and somehow they have uh captured our minds and you know money fame all of these different things or just not even money and fame sometimes just a small amount of money to be better than you were you know <laughs> just enough to come up a little bit is enough to keep some of us down and i understand that believe me i grew up in the projects of the south bronx and you know i know plenty of people including maybe me when i was young if you had said to me hey i'm going to give you this amount of money to do this commercial and it was some Coonan commercial, I probably would have wanted to do it when I was young. I didn't know a lot about being black. And I mean, I knew I was black, but I didn't know what it meant. I didn't know I had any responsibility or anything like that. So I would have wanted to do whatever it was because it would have been funny and it would have made me some money. And you know, the drug game, it gets people out of a lot of things. So it's hard to judge 
because you see the problems and you see the, what looks like a, a quick solution. So, um, you know, we have to find ways to give alternatives to those solutions so that we can come together. Okay. Um, one, of the, one of the things that concerns me now is that we seem to be at a crossroads, mm-hmm. breaking point, where some people want to hold on to the old ways or some people want their glory back, hence certain um, campaign slogans that will not be mentioned here. Um, but you also have people who, especially after the, this pandemic, right. and I know, you know, I know you've probably been a party to conversations like this, especially after this pandemic, Black people can't even pandemic in peace. Right. Ahmed Arbery, Rihanna yeah. Taylor, George Floyd. George Floyd seemed to be what sent this over the edge, his death, that just, his murder. Right. Um, and we're at a point where, okay, we ain't going back. Right. But we can't stay stagnant. Right, right. I so mean, how are we going to move forward? Because there are some who are saying, whatever it is that you want, you can't have it. Because we want what we want. We want what we had. Right. But another group is saying, no, you want, we ain't going back. So how are, are we at a point where I'm afraid that, and hopefully I'm wrong, but I'm hoping that we're not on the precipice of some violence. I hope not. Well, let me tell you this. And I've said this to people before, and I don't want anybody to misinterpret what I'm about to say. I am, I long for peace. But if you look back in history, there aren't many people who became free from peace. I mean, that's not the way to gain freedom. It's not. And anyone who sells that to you is selling you a bill of goods, man. I mean, it's just like, what are you, what are you saying? Look at history. How did people become free when somebody was enslaving them? They fought. That's what it takes. And um, I think that we, me and myself included, we have become so comfortable that we don't, we don't have that, um, we don't have that, that fight inside of us that our ancestors had. And I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm trying not to be offended by the shirts and the signs that say we are not our ancestors because the truth is we're not. We're not as good as some of our ancestors were. They fought for real. And those, sometimes I know what they were trying to say, but some of the shirts and means that say, oh, well, don't do this to us because we're not our ancestors. Like our ancestors went for it and, and we're not. I'm like, no, our ancestors didn't go for it but they didn't have the things we have today. They didn't have, you know, the, the connections and stuff or the education. And they didn't have the story about their ancestors going through it like we did. We should be a lot stronger by now, you know? So there is a fight that needs to happen, but it's, it's never gonna come from just peace. Martin Luther King tried that and he did his best. <clears throat> and I, I believe from what I've read and what I've seen, that he realized that the peaceful way was not gonna work after a while. And I believe that's why he's not here because him and Malcolm X started to come closer together 
realizing that, look, that bond, any means necessary, was looking a little more like what needed to happen. So it's, um, it's a lot. We've definitely become complacent. We've become comfortable. We've had advances. And any time when you let somebody advance a little bit, if a little bit will satisfy them, then a little bit is all you need to give them. You know, and so if me and you are having a relationship and it's horrible and I let it get a little bit better, then you might say, okay, well, let me get off of line now. Stop bothering him. He he got a little bit better. No, no, you deserve way better, but you'll take a little bit. And a flower petal as opposed to a bouquet. There you go. I mean, <laughs> it happens and it's it's sad. But, you know, I mean, people say, look, haven't we come so Yes. Oh, yeah, we've had advances. Yes, there are more Black people in movies. Yes, there are more Black people on TV. Yes, there are more Black millionaires. And this and other. Yes, that's true. But to me, what we were fighting for was not to just have more. It was to be free to be us, to be treated like humans. Like there's a, com a comedian who said, are you serious that there are people who are saying you shouldn't have equal rights? Who's saying no to that? Why is there even a fight for equal rights? How could you say to another human you can't be equal? That doesn't make sense. And then for blacks in the 60s, we were fighting just to have civil rights, just to be civil? That doesn't, that doesn't sound right. It sounds like that, that should be insane, especially when you're, you're looking at these words for what they really mean. But it is, and it's going to be a fight for a while. And until we stand up and fight for real, it's going to be a problem because it can't, it can't keep going like this. I think that almost every narrative that we've been fed to keep us in control has been fed from the top. And as long as they feed it to some of us to feed it to each other, that's how we'll stay in control. So I want to go back to one of the things that you were saying about how we've made strides in education. And you are an educator yourself. Yes. And you've also written a book yes. to help others make strides in education. So you're like paying it forward. Tell me about your book. My book is called How to Help Your Children Help Themselves. Um, the reason this book came about, it came from a seminar that I was conducting. I uh, shout out to, I don't wanna say it wrong, IS-238, Susan B. Anthony Academy in, uh, in Jamaica or Hollis, Queens. They're real close. I'm not sure if I was on the line or not, but I know it's, it's in that area. Um, I went there four years in a row to do this seminar. A friend of mine flew me up to, from when I was living in Nashville and flew me up to, to do the seminar for parents. I believed, that schools were becoming better, school buildings. I believe that they were making students better. They were educating teachers, making them better, but nobody was making parents better. And that it wasn't the parents' fault. It was somebody was leaving them out of the equation. I knew a lot of students when I taught that did whatever they wanted to do in school and some of their parents had no idea. And I'm not talking about bad stuff. I'm talking about good stuff as well. You know, oh, my child is in that. I didn't even know y'all had that at the school. You know, just... Whatever. And, you know, so, and some parents are so busy, you know, working and trying to keep the home together that their students would be gone all day. And they just know as long as they're passing their classes and doing their thing, they were fine. So it seemed like a lot of what I thought a lot of parents were doing, since I'm not a parent, I figured that some of these parents were treating school the way it was when they were young. 
oh, well, he goes to school, he does his classes. And some things had changed. And so I started to educate parents on that and educate them on relationships, uh, not just with the teachers, but which was very important, but also with the school system. The district, okay. um, what does your district offer you? What do they have that you can use? Um, what is the difference between a public school, a private school, a charter school, a parochial school? What kind of school is actually good for your child? And then the biggest thing was get to know your child. There were so many ways that I presented in the book to get to know your child better. <clears throat> because after your child starts going to school, you're with them a small amount of time, very small amount of time. And I found out from teaching that a lot of parents didn't know their children at all, but there were definitely ways to get to know them better because as a teacher, I'm trying to hone in on every child's learning style or personality style or intelligence, but I might have 30 kids in a class. I might have six classes a day. You know, that's a lot of kids for me to deal with, and I might never get to each one of them. But if I have a problem with your child and you know your child, then you can give me an insight on what to do to change your child in my class or to help them achieve in my class. And so that book was born out of that uh, seminar, and I felt like um, it took me five years to finally get it out. I kept saying I was going to write it and kept saying I was going to write it. It's actually my second book, but my first book has yet to be written. So this is the first one now. So, <laughs> <laughs> But um, I finally locked myself up last Christmas and finished it because I was, I was desperate to come home with it done. And um, it's, it's, um, I think it's been helpful. I think that it's very helpful now in this COVID time because you definitely want to know your child now if they're at home. Right. Um, oh my goodness. Anything that can help you now for, for your children being at home and you having to help them and see them the whole time or leave them at home while you go to work, you want to know as much as possible. So there's a lot of good information, I think, in there that can help people out. And I don't, I never, I mean, you said we, I paid it forward. I didn't, it, okay. I guess you could say that. It felt like I just used what I saw and put it down. There's a lot of things that have been researched that are in my book, but I refuse, and I don't know if this will get me kicked out of the education community or not, but I refused to have a book that seemed like it was a bunch of research because it was for parents. And even though I'm not a parent, I know that a lot of parents do not want to read through something that sounds like an educational journal. You want something practical, like yeah, what and, can I do? And that's what I wanted to give. And I, so it's called, it's called a manual for parents. And um, I just definitely wanted them to have something that they could read straight through and say, okay, this is what I need to do. And it even has a value spectrum at the end where they can rate themselves on how good they're doing by what they're doing for their kids. And um, there's a t-shirt that goes along with the book because a zot is a parent who's not doing anything for their kids. And so there's a shirt that says, I am not a zot. <laughs> It goes along. So after you do the value spectrum and you find out you're not a Zot, then you can get the, you can buy the shirt and, you know, rock that as well. <laughs> so I have a question about the familial community. So what if you are not a parent? What if you are an auntie? I'm an auntie. What if you are an uncle? What if you are a neighbor, close friend, 
family member or, or, you know, extended family member, but you have a stake in the well-being of the child. Can this book be useful to the oh. extended family as well? If you're a caregiver, then this is the book for you. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> no, no, really, I, I told people that this, this book is for, for whoever would love to read it. It's, um, the things that, that, are, that are said in this book don't just help you get to know your children. It helps you to get to know yourself. Okay. as well. Um, a lot of people, when I would do these seminars with parents and I would have them on computers doing different tests and things and the things they found out about themselves, I saw one lady I actually saw cry because she was, she realized something about herself that this test told her that cleared up some stuff in her head that was like, oh, this is why this has been happening and this is why I didn't do this and I should have done, you know. And so, I mean, when you get to know yourself, when you get to know others for real, relationships become better, uh, goals become in focus. You start to see what it is you need to do or what you should do or why you have these desires to do this, that, or the other. It's, it's such an easy thing to do, but a lot of us are missing it. And so, um, yeah, I would say that it's a good read. And man, it's a short read. It's not a huge book. It doesn't look like Moby Dick or you know, War and Peace or anything like that. It's, it's a small book. Um, and I think that it'd be, it'd be good for a lot of people. Um, teachers, parents, caregivers, aunts, uncles. It's not, it's not a magic trick. It's not going to make you clairvoyant, but it's definitely going to give you some, some things to look at. And there's a lot of, there are a lot of educational practices that we don't seem to use anymore. Uh, some teachers like in their classroom. I mean, just, just even just talking about learning styles. A lot of people don't use them. I know when I was teaching, a lot of we did we paid attention to the learning styles because we wanted to make sure that our lesson plans took care of all of the learning styles. So that no matter they're not what, doing that anymore. Because when I was in the classroom, that's what you know. I'm not saying about. they're not teaching it. Mm-hmm. I'm saying everybody's not doing it. Everybody's not taking advantage of that when they write their lesson plans. Everybody's not looking at personality types and saying, oh, okay, well, this child is obviously like this. Like, I know there are students who, I can't make you talk in class. You're not going to do it. And it's not because you're a bad kid or because you're defiant or anything like that. It might be because of your personality type. You know, it might be that's not something that's comfortable for you. And with knowing that public speaking is the number one fear even beyond death, why would I force some kid to do something like that? There are some children who cannot work with others. When we put them in groups and things like that, it's a problem. Now, I might say to them, hey, look, every once in a while, I'm gonna need you to at least sit in this group and do something because I want you to learn that. But I know that's not your thing. You know, um, intelligence in our country has always been limited to math or logical and literary. Those are the only two that we consider in America to be smart to be big intelligence but there are nine and kids are smart and adults are smart in different ways and so when we don't focus on those other ways we don't pull those in we allow people to become despondent and depressed because they're not feeling like they're succeeding in the way that they should but you have great musicians and great scientists who didn't have any of these smarts that people thought made them smart and they were great inventors and all of this stuff. So it's important for us to start to push these things and rid ourselves of the, um, 
the structure that kept things streamlined one way, like this is good and that's not. That's like our whole IQ system needs to go. I mean, we're not testing anything. ACT and SAT, as much as they have made money all over the country for years, mm -hmm. I guarantee you that the SAT does not test your intelligence. All it tests is your ability to take that test. And that's it. Because how do I know? Well, one, because it's true. Two, <laughs> because I worked at the Princeton Review and I taught kids how to take that test. And so the kids whose parents were paying learned how to take the test better. And they got 800s in both subjects and so they went to great schools. It didn't make them smarter than anybody else. They were just out there on Saturday and Sunday taking this class. So, you know, it's, it's crazy the way our education system seems to work. And, um, seems to favor those who have more money. Oh, well, like everything else. Because if you can't pay for test prep, then what? I mean, it's just what it is. And so it's, it's a lot, there are a lot of little things that we can do that will encourage kids and let them realize that their expression and their passions can be the thing that takes them to education. You know, it, it's not, and we, we see these people as, as doing things that are outside of what we want them to do when actually those are the things that will take them through education, that will guide them. So when, when some kid doesn't like to read and I say to him, well, what do you like? And he says, I like dogs. Then I'm going to get him some books on dogs because then he'll realize, oh, I do like to read, but I like to read the stuff I like to read. And then I can start to introduce him to things that, that aren't about dogs, that are about something else, because now I've got him with the thing that he likes. And there's so many things that we can do to pull kids in, but it seems like we're pushing them out. And especially our young black boys, when we get them into sports in school, the, the, the way that we, I can't believe how we do this. We, so you'll take some boys in middle school and put them in football mm -hmm. down south, let's say, and you'll say to them, listen, I want you to just use all your aggression, use all of this, you this and other, and, get the job done. You're going to run fast, or you're going to hit hard, you're going to do this and the other. And then you put them in the classroom and say, sit down and be quiet. After you've shown them that their aggression is what wins, hmm. they're fueling their passion and all of that fight is what's going to win. But then in the classroom, I don't want none of that. It's, it's crazy for a kid in fourth or fifth grade. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's insane. And then you know, especially if they're in a classroom with somebody who doesn't look like them or sound like them or they don't understand how this person even exists because there's nothing like the community they live in, it's confusing. Mm -hmm. And so there are a lot of things that we're not using that we could be using in the classroom. And I think that it's, I mean, I'm hoping it's not purposeful, but it's hard not to believe that it is. Mm. So we're going to start wrapping up. I say start because... Um, we haven't really spoken about this abominable trash heap of a year. Oh. That's 2020. 2020 is a Grinch. It's a mean one. Well, it's uh, definitely. definitely <laughs> and I'm scared because somebody said, I saw the other day, they said, what if 2020 is just a trailer for 2021? And I was Hello? like, oh, that's horrible. <laughs> mm -mm -mm. No, no, I rebuke that. <laughs> I rebuke that. So here's one thing I wanted to ask you. Now, I know we're both talking earlier before we start recording that neither one of us has been to church in a on a regular basis in, well, for me, it's been at least a couple of years. I don't know uh, what it's been like for you. But, <laughs> but 
some of the stuff and some of the imagery that we grew up seeing or reading about in in scripture texts after this old trash janky terrible year i'm wondering you know is some of this stuff is i've been thinking about is some of this stuff ringing true because some of what we were taught i knew that you know people taught it with such conviction and power and everything like that but in the back of my mind i said I can't see, I can't logically see how any of this could take place. Now in 2020, I see that, I still don't see how certain things can happen the way we were taught, right. but it seems more plausible. Armageddon seems very real now, uh, yeah. <laughs> so it's, um, I will say this, um, one of the best things that ever happened to me was to start to live outside of the religious bubble that I was going to. Because every, how can I say this? When you live in a religious bubble, you only know those things that you're taught. And the truth is that some things are right because they're right, and some things are right because somebody told you they were right. And it's hard to discern because, um, you know, there are people who grew up thinking the world was flat. And, and obviously, there are people who think it still today, which is hilarious. That baffles my mind. But yeah, me too. It's, it's, it's hard for me. Um, but there are things that you, you grow up thinking because you believe those things, because you were taught. And then there are also things that are universal that you think are just a part of your little, your religious life, you know, because you're in a religious group, you think this belongs to this group, you know? So whereas the denomination we were affiliated with, we would think, oh, all of this just goes with this denomination. But then when you look at larger Christendom, you see, oh, that, no, everybody believes that in Christendom. Oh, okay. But even outside of Christendom, there are people who still believe in God. God to me, is God everywhere. When I was in Kuwait, he was Allah. You know, I mean, he's Yahweh. He's, he's all of these people. He's God is God. So the whole fact is that I don't believe there's any God that's not trying to get me to do what's right. Okay. God is the force in my life that puts me on the path for Brian Watts that was made for him. No matter what he tells me to do, if I do what he tells me to do, and I stay on path, then he's, he's down with me, regardless of what I call him. Now, the truth is, everybody has their own thing. Okay, God says this, or God does this, or God wants you to do this. And most of these systems are made for control. <clears throat> um, I, I just, there's no better way to even say it. I mean, so let's take Christendom, for example. Um, most people would tell you that you need to come to church. Oh, why don't you go to church? You need to come to church more often. You need to do this, any other. But when you look at the Bible, the heroes of the Bible were the people who weren't in church. 
they were the people who said, mm, I'm going to talk straight to God and he's going to talk straight to me and we're going to do this thing, however it works out. So Abraham, all of these people who are the heroes, they, they had a personal relationship deeper than just me going to a church to find him. No, I'm with him every day and I'm talking to him. And even Jesus, the top hero of the Bible, was barely in the sanctuary. Mm -hmm. Yet the people who were there all the time, the Pharisees, are the people who you're supposed to be against, but everybody's begging you to be a Pharisee, to come to church every week. So it's odd to me how we read, you're reading this book in there and you're still telling me to do the things that the people who are the losers, you said, are doing. So I would much rather, and I'm not saying church is wrong. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of things I learned at church, but um, some of those things that I learned are the reason why I'm not there now. So <laughs> it's, it's, um, it's what it is. My relationship with God has, um, has definitely brought me to the spot where I am now. Mm -hmm. It has definitely saved me from a lot of things. It has definitely put me into a certain perspective. And it's, it's saddening when you're not at church that somebody says, oh, you don't believe in God anymore? Uh, what does that have to do with it? Going to church has nothing to do with believing in God. Um, not forsaking the assembly of your brothers. I assemble with my brothers all the time. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't mean it has to be in that building or whatever, but it's what it is. So I, I would dare say that I love church for the discipline it gives and the foundation it gives. <clears throat> but there are some things that um, I don't agree with anymore. And um, right. from, from their mouths, two cannot walk together unless they agree. And so since I don't agree, <laughs> I don't walk with you. And you taught me that. So <laughs> um, that's, that's what we're going to do. And I'm just taking it. I, I don't want to offend you. So since I don't agree, I don't, I don't walk that way. And that's, that's where we're off. What's one thing you don't agree with anymore? Just one. Because I know you said we could be here forever. I'm a black male, right? Um, I know for sure that in, I'm not going to name them, but in the denomination I was in, that um, most of the tithe and offering that were collected by the larger body were coming from people of color who had no power and weren't even really in the same conferences as the people who were not people of color. I also know that the organizations in my country that promote and hold on to racism are considered Christian. Um, when I look at the religious right and all of the things that they always speak on during election times, they don't cover anything that I want them to cover. Yet, I'm paying my money to them. I'm working hard. I'm trying to fight against um, inequality. And then I'm paying my money to the people who are trying to kill me. I can't do it. I refuse to keep funding pillowcases and all of that stuff. I mean, I can't. It, it seemed insane to me. So when I, um, when I tell people, you know, that's, that's not a system that I want to be a part of because I'm fighting on one side and I'm spending my money. That's like, I mean, that's insane. I'm supporting you. <laughs> and it's just, it's just hard for me. So 
that was just one thing. And that, that's all you asked for. So that's what I'll give you. But yeah, there's, <laughs> a, there's a lot um, that I just believe that the church teaches some of the things that they seem to go against. Um, they were teaching me that God has a purpose for Brian John Thomas Watts. And he has a purpose that only you can fulfill. Yet, when I try to step away, it's, no, you need to come back in here and be with everybody else. Well, no, what about my purpose that he wanted me to fulfill? So it's, it's contradictory. So I think that if I just talk to him, then he can tell me. You don't get any mixed messages. <laughs> yeah, I, because every organization, Liz, and this is definitely true, every organization that's in um, existence their first order of business is to keep their organization running. Hmm. That's right. it. That's the main focus for every organization. Churches are organizations. They're businesses. Okay. The denomination we were in at one point was the third largest business in the world at one point. So if your mission is to keep your organization running, how can I trust that what you want me to do in that organization is what he wants me to do? Is it what you want me to do? Because it feeds your organization. So, I mean, I can't, I can't trust that. And maintains control. It, it definitely does. So we're going to wrap up with, first of all, did you see the debate? This is being recorded on the 8th of October, the day after the first vice presidential debate. Did you see that debate? I, I, I don't, well, actually, I don't have, local tv i i um i had didn't have it in kuwait and i came back and i was i was off the drug so i just you know because i mean i'm a tv watcher i watch stuff all night long but i don't have tv like that now and so i was i'm almost glad because it's it's hard to watch two people argue when you feel like one of them isn't like ready for this fight you know, and it's, um, I heard that it was insane. I heard both of them were insane. And the first one was just ridiculous. I had a headache after the first presidential debate. I had a headache and I was mad. I was like, the, the, my two cents in taxpayer money is going to pay to your salary. Wow. Y'all need to do better. Wow. Wow. Well, what happened last night? How, how bad was it last night? Well, I think it was, it was definitely more civil. Okay. But in my opinion, um, the current vice president is, I, I can see why, why President Trump picked him. They, to me, seem like two peas in a pod. Okay. One is just several decibels quieter than the other. But as far wow. as um, interrupting right. the opponent, as far as not answering questions, uh, Pence was more cogent when he made wow. his points. But, um, but it, to me, it seemed like another display of, huh, of that privilege Right. That you see, I'm going to, and I, 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 I was thinking the same thing, and I saw. I think it was Charlemagne the guy said on the Breakfast Club. It was just another. It was another instance of that. I don't care what you ask me. Right. I'm going to say what I want when I want, and if I don't like what you're saying, I'm going to interrupt you and talk over you. It's like a parent and a child. Yeah. Yeah. 
And um, I'm just going to tell you that never before, never since the movie, The Fly, has a fly been this popular. Never. I mean, I was like, that's amazing. All I saw on Facebook and on every other media today was this fly. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. If, if, if you had something good to say, nobody would even saw that fly. You know what I mean? Or it would have flown away and it would have been something that nobody even talked about. Or maybe somebody who ever brought it up would have been like, oh, shut up. So what? There was a fly in it. But the fact that this fly has become famous shows me that there wasn't much else going on in that debate. Um, and I'm very, I'm very, you know, sort of disturbed by that because there's a lot to talk about. A lot. Um, but the truth is, there's not a lot that, um, that is going to change with the current administration if they stay in power. They have shown you who they are. You know who they are already. There's, there's, if there's four more years of them, it's four more years of the same. It won't be something new. Mm -hmm. So they really didn't even need to debate. What this is, look at these four years, this is what we're doing. Mm -hmm. I know one thing um, I also noticed is that I've seen Kamala Harris in other debates when she was running for the Democratic ticket. She was more animated. She, I was, I was watching that debate when she uh, took Joe Biden to task about the crime bill the 19, in the 1990s. That Kamala Harris was present, but she was tamped down. Well, she and had I wit. I wish she didn't have to be that way, though. She does. She has ne there has never been a Black woman where she is right now. And I'm going to tell you, Kamala's debate is never going to be against Pence or anything. Her debate is going to be if she is a politician or an angry Black woman. That's all people want to know. Which one are you going to be? And this whole thing of an angry Black woman is so insane. But if you even look on Facebook now, all they're showing is all her little faces that she was making and, oh, which one was your favorite face when she lifted him like this? She, they're, they're pushing that narrative so much that every action she has is going to be like, oh, because you're angry. Oh, because you're a Black woman. Oh, because you're this and other. And I'm like, what does that have to do with anything? I haven't seen anything on an angry white woman. I haven't seen anything on an angry white man, which there are plenty of. I haven't seen anything on an angry black man, but somehow when it comes to our sisters, that's all it's about. And that's all people want to see or hear. And we are even pushing the narrative as well. And so I'm sure she went out there trying not to have anything that even looked like that. Like she was avoiding the appearance of evil because that's what everybody's looking for, for her to have snotty comebacks, to be sassy or to be this, that, and the other. Because for some reason, even though Black women have been everything in our country, people reduce all of you to that. And I think that's- And what we do when others do it, it's seen in a more positive light. Oh, no doubt. No, oh, he was assertive. Oh, he was powerful. Or he exactly. was skillful and masterful. And 
Yeah, yeah. And I'm Drake, not sick of that. Wait, wait, I'm wait, not wait, sick wait, of that foolishness. Wait, well, I'm saying, and look, and you get too much sick of it, and they're going to call you one too. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's, that's well, what call what me what you will. Right. I'm still sick of it. Oh, <laughs> It's a problem because um, it's just like there are there are territorial differences like that as well. As right. a New Yorker in the South, um, I had problems with jobs because people were like, oh, you're not passionate enough. And so, okay, when I started to show passion, why are you so aggressive? Dude, this is my passion. This is what you asked for, you know? And then when I finally moved back to New York and I started to talk to people and I kept explaining stuff, people were like, why are you explaining? We know what you're talking about. We get it. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'm back home. I'm good. You know, people understand what I mean. And so it's it's when you can put somebody's, um, feelings into a bottle that make it seem negative, then you have them for the rest of their lives because every emotion they show is wrong. You know, a, a black woman fighting for her children is wrong. A black woman fighting for anything is wrong now because she's angry now. But what did you do to incite her to this anger? You know what I'm saying? You killed her son in front of her, she should be angry. You know what I'm saying? You took her kids away because somebody said she should be angry. You know what I'm saying? So these things, um, they're just more and more tricks of the trade for them. And I feel like when you look at this bunch of old white men that are on this debate and in this race, that a, a younger black woman has, first of all, well, I'm, I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying. She has no business in there with them. She has business to be vice president, but she has no business in a room with these old fogies. They shouldn't be there. You know what I'm saying? She should be able to be on a ticket with somebody who has some youth to them, some experience, some, you know, something that they can actually give. We don't even know how long these guys are going to live. I mean, these guys are on their way out. They've been doing this since before we was born. You know, most of them, except for Donald Trump, because he doesn't have any experience. But I mean, she should definitely, I would love to have seen her paired up with somebody who I think could really make a change. And I feel like they're going to, I don't, it's hard to say this, but I feel like they're going to waste her. Like they're just going to use her for, especially if they win. They're going to use her as a as a front for things and a face for things. And she's really going to try to do her best, I'm sure, just like Obama did. I mean, you can try and try, but they didn't let that man do much. So, and they're trying to dismantle what he what he did. No, no, they're dismantling it definitely. in the mad, in the middle of a pandemic, which is yeah. just utterly foolish. But that's the goal. That's what's most important. And so I feel I feel bad for her in a way to have reached to this level and possibly not be able to do what needs to be done because that is all people see and you know it seems like in the history books that's what it'll be but i hope that she definitely can change that narrative and do something great and um you know hopefully somehow we can we can rock this out i don't have a lot of faith in the system um but um i'm always still optimistic let's put it that way (laughs) That was Brian Watts, and you can learn more about him, his book, his radio show on Envision Radio at planetnown.com. All the links are there. I'm Liz Anderson, host of the Planet Noun podcast. Don't forget to follow us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We're also on SoundCloud. And when you get a minute, stop by Apple Podcasts and rate the show. Thank you so much again for stopping by. And until next time, take care. Take care.